I rejoice in eating dirty. Welcome to my podcast, Spirit and Spice. I'm Gilly Bashan, a writer and broadcaster with a passion for food. Not just the food on my plate, but the people and the stories behind it. Today I'm having lunch with one of Scotland's best-known culinary figures, Claire MacDonald. And her little sausage dog, Darcy, is joining us as well. <laughs> yes, we hope not too vocally. Well, I'm just going to tuck in because oh, it yes. all looks Dilly. delicious. Oh, Gilly, crack on. Shall I pop some onto your plate too? Oh, but that would be so kind. But you know, Claire... You are a household name, particularly for my generation and my mother's generation. And I grew up with you in our house because my mother was one of your biggest fans. You know your early books, those paperback ones, you had supper, lunches, celebrations. I mean, they are, you know, completely thumbed and stained and, and all shriveled looking because they've been so used. But I remember the thing that she loved most was that you would do the kind of dishes of her childhood as well. Things people don't do so oh, much now. Like pudding. Well, that, but also yeah. things like your wonderful terrines, you know, oh. pigeon and pheasant terrines. Yes. And her favourite was venison with pickled walnuts. Oh, that's, <laughs> that was a casserole that I learnt, I goodness knows who taught me though, but when I was cooking in the Travis Theatre, I somehow, somewhere, have some of this, it's charcoal. Yes, I'm going to have myself, yes. Somehow or somewhere, I got this idea to casserole venison with prunes and pickled walnuts. The prunes and pickled walnuts counteract each other. They benefit from the long, slow cooking that any casserole needs and um, it just seemed to go well but as with everything then in the Travis Theatre the first time I made it it was probably inedible the first (laughs) omelette I made was when I got an order for five at the Travis Theatre and all I can say is that the fifth omelette was almost edible. The first certainly wasn't. <laughs> so was this, this, this was pre-Kinloch Lodge days? This was days when oh, you were I even was, pre-marriage? Oh, yes, right. very much so. I was 17. Right. And um, the I, Travis Theatre in Edinburgh. Yes, yes, in its original place, down a wind, just down from the castle. And it was terrifying, terrifying. It was full of sort of very arty people who really were completely removed from me and my greatest friend. But she and I were cooking for a living, rather ahead of our time. And we let we hired ourselves out um, to do parties, but this was really before anyone had people to do parties. So, um, hence the day job at the Travis Theatre. I've learnt how to cook as I've gone along. So I'm still learning. It's good to think that you're still learning because then it means you are still inspired, you know, especially when you're traveling and things. It's lovely to feel that you can still be inspired. But in your biography, Lifting the Lid, you talk about the early days at Kinloch Lodge and you um, almost had to teach yourself as you went along, oh. how to produce the meals that they were eating, you know, so they, you must have like taken a step above what you were doing at the Travis well. Theatre. <laughs> yes, but I was 17 at the Travis Theatre, 21 when I got married, and 22 when we took over Kinloch. Um, but 
what I did have was a very clear idea of the sort of food we, Godfrey and I, would like to find if we went to stay somewhere. The food was the first important thing. Neither of us had any hotel training, but Godfrey was trained to be a chartered accountant. But I did know what I wanted to give people by way of food. And in those days, right from the start, my first priority was food in season. And my first book was seasonal cooking. And I've written three seasonally orientated books since then. But I abide by the seasons. And I think that it's a shame that we spent so long in Scotland with the seasons blurred. I do a one-woman research into supermarket-sold strawberries. And I just think it's so important to know what not to buy, El Santo, um, the dreariest berry I have ever had the misfortune to eat, until I came across another one called Centurion, um, deadly. So there are some fruit growers who obviously produce breeds for supermarkets where the absolute aim is long shelf life. Never mind the taste, never mind the flavour. That means that there are people who think a strawberry is a strawberry is a strawberry. They don't realise how different they are. Because you have always cooked seasonally, um, mm. you've always actually been a champion of um, Scottish food producers, Very both food so. and drink producers. Yeah. And that's something that's, you know, I think people forget that you were actually one of the early voices <laughs> in that, you know. One of the greediest, Gilly, uh, that's maybe, me. <laughs> maybe, but, you know, it's the very mm. fact that you were speaking out for producers. Mm. One of the first books that I had of yours, this is aside from the ones that my mother had, um, was your Claire MacDonald Scotland, oh, yes. uh, which is a beautiful book. And, I, you know, it was a, a lovely cover with a heather on the front, but inside the book you not only give the recipes that you were cooking at Kinloch Lodge, you're busy feeding the producer at the same time, yeah. I see. It, she's the only one who can't talk. It's a little unfair it's of us so eating, tucking into this, and, and, and she's not getting any. The, the salmon is delicious. The lime mm. in that salmon is like just it? so mm. nice. too, you see... Mm, I mean, it sounds so mean to say it's mm. so good for you, but right, that's enough. Stop feeding my producer, please. <laughs> and the awful truth is, there's a complete absence of bread because Godfrey's got it with him and he's in the garage waiting for the car to be serviced. As soon as he arrives, I'm sure arrive. Darcy will bark and will know yes, that bread is on his way. Exactly that. <laughs> But no, in that book, um, mm. you know, you, you actually give a lot of space over to uh, Scottish producers and that's mm. something that you still champion. You see, we're on one end of the menu, so people know about us and about Kinloch Lodge. And way, way back, it seemed to me so unfair that the food was anonymous. It deserved to give the credit and merit to the people who'd caught it, produced it, raised it, grown it. Everything should have a name and give credit to the source. It's incumbent on all of us to know and to be able to put a face 
to the people who produce our food mm -hmm. and grow it and raise it. And then you can be selective. And I can't see how people can write about food, produce programmes, whether radio or television, without getting in amongst the people who produce it. Online is a dead anonymity. I've just been finishing writing a recipe for the Sky Food Festival, and I'm doing a tiny cooking den there. And I'm doing lamb as one recipe, and I still work for Quality Meat Scotland. And I think of going to the sheep sales at Dalmally, noticeably, the black-faced ewe sales in September. And you meet hill sheep farmers who teeter on the verge of bankruptcy and have done through the sheer ineptitude of the politicians who cannot get the technology to work properly to give them the money they are owed and depend upon in the subsidies from Brussels. And some of these farmers have gone two years without. But do you not feel that in Scotland now, particularly with some of the young chefs in places oh. like Glasgow and Edinburgh, that they're beginning to try and source from our oh, local producers? Yes. Do you feel there is a change? Oh, there's a huge change. There's a vast and thrilling change because it's not just the wonderful food producers, it's the wonderful chefs, men and women. And where teamwork really wins is in a kitchen producing good food, not in people who think that they're so good at their job they can swear and rant and rave. Um, we're saying goodbye mercifully to a chef as part of our brigade who is like this. There isn't room for such a person in a kitchen. They're divas, they're prima donnas, usually without the talent that backs up the behaviour in their perception. What is mm. the kitchen like in Kinloch Lodge then? Mm. Because do you have a say on what goes on in there now that you're not always at Kinloch Lodge? No, it's wonderful. I have no say at all except as taster. That's a <laughs> I tell you, it's the best. After years of... Um, I'm just going to reach for some salt. Um, after years... That's interesting. You always put lots of salt on your yeah, food. Yeah, you salt your taste. No, I've nice. never seen anybody eat as much salt as you. Mm. But that's wonderful that you do because so many people... Oh, so against so, having salt, so aren't they? They're smug too. They mm. say, I'd never touch salt. And I say, poor you, because... Um, it does salt help, it, doesn't it? it? Salt is so a taste enhancer. Mm -hmm. And it's a very cheap way for every sort of government to try to hammer our consciences about our health. But we need salt. There is a medical situation of salt deprivation... And when I was growing up in a hot country, we were given salt tablets to suck. Food cooked without salt or eaten without salt is half the flavour. Yep, we do eat excess salt when we eat ready-made meals and packets and packets of crisps. But as long as we know what not to do, the government directive is so typically unhelpful 
six grams of salt, no more, per person per day. But six grams, I mean, I can just about read 100 grams on my weighing scale. (laughs) Six grams is actually a (laughs) teaspoon, and it's quite a lot. I've just put a generous pinch on my very char-grilled asparagus because I didn't season it and meant to before. I think people get quite worried, you know, there's a sort of anxiety that goes through, you know, what diet they should be on, Mm. uh, what they should and shouldn't be eating. To some degree, we've almost just lost the sheer pleasure, haven't we? You should feel guilty about feeling guilty. I'd like to take those (laughs) sickening young women who started this thing about clean eating and knock their heads together. I mean, imagine clean eating. The implication is that the rest of us eat dirty. Well, I rejoice in eating dirty. Now, one of my many daughters went through a phase of uh, clean cooking and everything, everything, broccoli, fish, everything tasted of coconut oil. Coconut oil, I don't know what properties it's got. I've read the books but forgotten. The most repugnantly revolting substance But what it has got is an awful lot of calories, like all oils, without the nutritional benefit. I'm sure it belongs in some recipes, but not across the board in all of them. And clean eating is so much rubbish. I do believe, and I'm learning, about the German attitude to good health. In Britain, we've always thought it lay in our hearts. In Germany, they believe health emanates from the gut. And more and more, you're seeing articles in this country aware of the same thing, about the need to eat yoghurt daily. You need to eat something fermented to feed the good bacteria in our guts. Yoghurt falls into that category. As long as it's live yoghurt. As long as it's live and not ladled with sugar and fruit. But we should eat minimum 150 mils of yoghurt daily. Even reduced fat yoghurt, natural. That's why I suppose the Germans love sauerkraut. I'm learning. Having fermented uh, foods is very much part of the ancient cultures of, of particularly Southeast Asia, China, Uh, Korea, all of that part of the world. So we're way behind. We are, but we're getting there, and that's Mm. the main thing. Yes, the bread! Yes, our bread has arrived! Hello, Hello. Hello, lovely to see you. This is Katie. This is Katie. I'm a sausage dog owner as well. Well, aren't we lucky? (laughs) (laughs) Take me back Mm. to where it all began. Because, I mean, one of your quotes from your, your biography, Lifting the Lid, is mm. about you and Gog. Mm-hmm. And it is, we are and always have been in it together. Mm-hmm. And here you still are. You are still always together, always attending uh, all the demonstrations mm. and the food festivals and the award ceremonies. But right from the start, you had to take on the role of your parents, Gog, mm-hmm. when you were in, what, your first or second year of marriage? You yes. were just newly married. The end of our first year, wasn't mm. it? Yep. It mm-hmm. was. It was also unexpected, too, because my father died very young, at the age of 60, and we were sort of pitched in. We anticipated 
that one day we'd have to inherit, but certainly not that that soon. And we, I was trained to be a chartered accountant in Edinburgh, and we had our future sort of planned out, and then suddenly the sky, well, <laughs> the sky literally opened, didn't it? Mm. And when people talk about inheriting, they're assuming you might have inherited a nice pocket of money <laughs> and a, a nice castle to sort of move into, and life would have been easy-ozy, but it wasn't like no, that. That's, that's a joke. <laughs> <laughs> I inherited an estate that was really run down, subject to not only my father's death duties, but death duties on his inheritance too. We had a double whammy of death duties and we really didn't know what on earth we were going to do. Um, in those days it was still expected for the eldest son to go back up and look after the family estates, but there wasn't much of the estate left. So really that's how Kinloch Lodge began. We in those days had another two hotels as well. Um, and it was a question of what did we do to earn a living. I had to be on the, on the island. Um, I had responsibilities in those days, Inverness County Council, um, Highland Health Board, all this sort of thing that dictated that we lived in Skye, but what did we do to earn money? It was as simple as that, and we turned our hand to Kinloch Lodge, didn't we? We did. And you literally just rolled up your sleeves and got on, didn't you? Because well, it, you had to. Well, one hotel burnt down, our father, <laughs> and um, it burnt down. Your father died, hadn't he? Yes. It burnt down in 1972. Did it? Right. Yeah, within 18 months of my father dying. Yeah, so... One of the main acids went up in smoke. <laughs> and it turned out it wasn't insured. Um, so we had to rebuild it. That was when we moved up and took over the other hotels. It couldn't really have been a worse time, those early 70s. You're far too young to remember. But it was at the time of rampant inflation. And... We had to rebuild our Vasa because it was a listed building. We wanted to because it was in the centre of the village. But nobody would give us a fixed price contract. It was a time and material basis and it ended up costing us literally hundreds of thousands of pounds, which just compounded the, the debt situation. And also at that time, it wasn't like you could actually have a hotel open all year round, could you? Certainly not. Winter was definitely closure time. The, mm. the season in those days was really, it, you'd get a little boost at Easter, you'd get a little boost towards Whitsun at the end of May, but nothing really got going till the end of June, beginning of July. And by the second end of the, or even the first week in September, the place was dead again. So you only had a few months That's to try right. to recoup some yeah, of the money mm -hmm, that you'd yeah, had to mm -hmm. put into rebuilding things. Yes. So stressful. Well, <laughs> but when you're young, you can take an awful lot more than you can. I wouldn't. I really would not want to be undertaking what we are, what we did in those. I suppose early in days those days now. we still went to the bank manager, though. So you actually probably had a good relationship with we, with we the bank manager, did you? Relationship. <laughs> we had, no, we had a very, very good relationship with a local man, but um, we had a desperately bad relationship with his superiors right. because I think he was really that the local man was on our side and wanted to do everything he could to help us, but I think. His superiors saw the absolute, how the figures just weren't going to add up. And, um. and also we tried to pay key members of staff all year round when we weren't earning. So we went on getting deeper into debt. You know, these people had families, commitments, they lived locally. It would have meant they had to go and work away. Also, um, with your inheritance, you, you had to then take on the role of being chief of the MacDonald clan. Mm -hmm. And um, 
I, I presume that meant you had responsibilities elsewhere. I mean, I remember in 1979 going to a clan gathering yeah. in North Carolina, yes. and I was so surprised to see so many Americans and Canadians come from all over, completely yes. the far-flung corners of, of, of North America, to Grandfather Mountain mm -hmm. for this one occasion, yes. and the guest um, clan mm -hmm. were the was the clan McRae, yep. uh, all the way from sort of this Invernessia region. Yes. And I was at school with two of them, so I was just so delighted because I, I knew who the VIPs were at this clan gathering and rushed over to say hi to them. But you must have had to do a lot of that as well in amongst all of this. Well, it was. It was a, the clan side was separate from the, 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 the personal side, but it was still an enormous undertaking because Clan Donald is by far the largest clan. And in those days, people couldn't communicate the way they can communicate now. There's no email or anything like that. So it was a lot of personal correspondence that used to come to me, um, people wanting to visit. And it would be their, the high point of their life, really, to come back to the land of their forefathers and to meet the chief. And I don't know whether they were very disappointed when they did meet the chief, but <laughs> it was an enormous, it really was an enormous responsibility on top of everything else. And our travelling overseas, again, in those days, you know, crossing the Atlantic wasn't as simple as it is now. Um, actually, in those days, you could at least travel with a ski and do. More recently, when I travelled, I've had my ski and do removed and almost impounded. It was another time my sporran was picked up on a um, one of these X-ray machines. They thought I was trying to import some goats. <laughs> <laughs> Some awful mm. animal skin or something. Yes, stomach but the these goat. these sort of things. But it was it was mm. a, it was an enormous responsibility on top of everything else. But you know, as I say, when you're young, you just get on with it. Mm. You accept what you've got to do. You understand that membership of a clan is still a very very important thing to many many tens of thousands of people. The further away they are from where their roots are, the more important these things become. And we realised that fairly early on. That's gradually evolved into even the communication now is so much easier than it was then. And it finds its own level. It's still a big responsibility. Where have you had to go in recent years? Well, if we wanted, we could really be travelling all the time in connection with the clan, but we don't. And we is that paid for by Absol the clan? Absolutely no, no. not. <laughs> oh my goodness, so added absolutely to not. all these debts you inherited, yeah. you suddenly had to find the money to go travelling as well. That's right. Wow. Um, probably once a year we try and go somewhere in connection with the clan. And of course the clan is enormous, it's spread throughout the entire English-speaking world. And I have high, I appoint a high commissioner in, the, in Australia, New Zealand, America, United States and Canada. Um, there's a Clandon Society in South Africa. There's even a Clandon Society in Europe where a lot of the old clansmen mercenaries after the 1745 rebellion emigrated to, to Europe and fought for, as mercenaries. Um, very fascinatingly at Waterloo one of my ancestors was one of Wellington's generals and on Napoleon's side was, and that was his first cousin Marshal MacDonald of Tarentum fighting for Napoleon <laughs> these sort of anomalies and it, yeah. it's fascinating all these and last year, when we were in Savannah for the Clan Donald USA AGM um, 
we went to the commemoration of a battle in Savannah, again, where two MacDonald brothers were fighting on opposing sides. Was that the Battle of Independence? I ought to remember. Mm-hmm. It was, wasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. It's exhausting, but you always learn so much. It's fascinating, and nobody in their right minds would choose to visit Savannah in the middle of August. Um, or worse, Las Vegas Las in the middle Vegas of August, two, three <laughs> years ago. You do not want to go to Las Vegas when you're wearing a Harris tree jacket, woolen stockings. Oh, goodness, those woolen <laughs> and socks, a, And yes. a thick kilt, which Don't. is fine for attending a Highland funeral, but not as good, not terribly good in Las Vegas. <laughs> and we used to get up really early because we found a hotel with the most delicious cafe. Oh, and even at seven o'clock, walking back, you felt that your skin was being seared from your bones on your shins. Anything that was exposed, it, it was heat that I've never experienced. Savannah was a damper heat, tiring in a way. More suicidal. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> so now, at this stage in your life, you are still involved with Kinloch Lodge on the accountancy side. Mm-hmm. But, Claire, you have almost got your hands free. I mean, after all those years of all of your energy and raising four children while, while running the lodge, you are now just going in to taste, you say. That's all you have to do is well, go in and taste. <laughs> it's all I have to do at Kinloch, and it's wonderful. It's not meant to sound disloyal to it because we're so proud that our second daughter Isabella is now running Kinloch but it is so lovely I've never got used to not living over the shop and I revel in it I love it I love Kinloch I loved our guests I love nearly all of our staff but I love not living there. <laughs> it's wonderful. It is a beautiful location, though. Beautiful and location. you put, the pair of you put, uh, you know, I think Sky on the culinary map all on your own because oh. it has received the most amazing reviews through the years, including it being cited as one of the 25 best small hotels in the world by Condé Nast Traveller magazine. So, you know, you, you have so much to be proud of and it, it evokes that romance that people come to Scotland for because you've got the beautiful views, you've got the history, you've got the good food. And you've even, you even provide them with misty, rainy weather. I mean, you, you do it all. <laughs> oh, you are so kind. But you can never, ever rest on a single laurel leaf. I mean... We always have to look forward, and every winter sees um, a budget which we've worked out through the summer. It's like the fourth road bridge. You go on and on trying to do it up and improve it and and move with the times, which is where Isabella's so good, and we're getting better at it, aren't we? Well, but as you say, Claire, you never rest. You know, you never rest on your laurels, and both of you are so busy. 
and you are always writing recipes but what you must never forget is you are a national treasure oh, you really okay. are so you are sweet. you are a national treasure oh, and i am delighted that. to be doing my very first podcast with you thank you both for inviting me for a delicious but lunch gilly, dear gilly may this be the start of millions of podcasts made all sorts of things grow on the back of this. Well, I think Happy things lunch. might grow because Good. you spoke your mind today, Claire. So <laughs> 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 things may grow in all sorts of directions. You have to be honest and upfront because things never change for the better. I just think it has to be said. So thank you, Gilly, for giving me the opportunity. <laughs> Another spoonful. <laughs>